0: A very common opinion, especially from passionate moviegoers, is that sequels are rarely as good as the original. Very common opinion. So, you know, the original is great, wonderful, and then either for a money grab or just to capitalize on the momentum, we make a sequel, probably too fast, it's not that great, never measures up to the original, it's what we talk about at dinner parties, things like that. But every now and then, you will get a sequel that is either as good as or maybe even better than the first. And in order to have that, you need significant character development. You need the storyline advance. You maybe need a twist or two. For instance, in honor of, you know, May 4th was this week. And half of you probably don't know what that means. And those of you who laughed know exactly what I'm talking about. May the 4th be with you. Uh, Okay, sorry. The other half of you who know what I'm talking about just got very angry. That was a joke. Okay, uh, Star Wars, may the force be with you, may the fourth. Okay. So, in honor of that, perhaps the greatest sequel ever, if you Google greatest sequel of all time, at the top of many charts is uh, the sequel to Star Wars or Episode 5. Again, calm down. I know it's not Episode 2, Preston right? You have the storyline advancing. Uh, apparently last time I talked about Star Wars, I called episode five, episode two, and a whole community group time was derailed. <laughs> and someone was like, but did you learn anything? And they're like, no, he said episode two, it's episode five. Uh, so episode five, calm down. So you have, you know, the storyline advancing, characters developing a big twist at the end. Luke, I'm your dad, right? It's just a very big twist, one of the biggest in cinematic history. And today, we have a sequel passage to what we saw last week. And it's going to defy the odds. It's not just Matthew looking for, you know, uh, page fillers. What's another Jesus miracle story I can just throw in here to make this 28 chapters? Rather, Matthew is very intentional about giving us round two or episode five of Jesus's battle with the Pharisees. We saw last week, the Pharisees wanting to accuse Jesus, see him, his disciples plucking grain in the grain fields. And they interpreted that as doing work on the Sabbath. And so they, they go head to head with him. And Jesus has this beautiful declaration of go and learn, go read the heart of God that he desires mercy, not sacrifice. And today, as we're gonna see again, Episode 2 or 5, Jesus going up against the Pharisees. We're going to see Jesus display what does that mercy that is so near to the heart of God look like. We're going to get to see what was taught last week by Carl actually displayed before our eyes. And we're even going to see a twist at the end, a, a, a new development in the Pharisees. They no longer want to discredit Jesus. In fact, now they want to kill him. They want to destroy him. So what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to teach through the passage just so that we know what's going on. And then I'll give you our three points. I'll pull three things out for us to reflect on, but I'll I'll teach through it first that we know what's all happening here. What's the background here? So go ahead and look at verse 9 in your Bibles. Matthew 12, verse 9. I'll read the whole passage. He, Jesus, went on from there, there being the grain fields and entered their synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand and they the Pharisees asked him is it lawful to heal on the sabbath so that they might accuse him and he said to them which one of you who has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out how much more valuable is a man than sheep So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So again, remember the context. Carl taught last week. Jesus battle with the Pharisees, they're in the grain fields, and now we see this story is kind of continuing in verse 9, where they go from the grain fields into the synagogue, the place of worship. So Jesus and his disciples go in, it's the Sabbath, so it's this day where they would worship, similar to us on the Lord's Day. You gather together and you worship, and Jesus and his disciples go in. apparently the Pharisees still angry from getting, you know, owned in the last passage, follow him into the synagogue, and they want another go at Jesus. So they all walk in, this, this group, Jesus, his disciples, and the Pharisees, and there in the synagogue is a man, and he has a withered hand. He's, got a, a, he's handicapped in some way. He has a, a disability. Uh, Luke actually tells us that it is his right hand. So there's a, there's a man there in the synagogue hurting. Uh, at the very least, he has physical discomfort. He maybe endures a daily dose of shame. I imagine in that culture where uncleanliness is such a big thing to see, a withered hand, I imagine, wouldn't make people draw near to you, probably make them shrink away. Something is wrong with you. He probably has a a difficult time earning a living. Considering it's his right hand, I don't know how many lefties there were back in that day. But if it's anything like our day, I imagine it would be difficult. The point is he's obviously in need. He's obviously in need of healing. And standing right in front of this hurting man are two groups. The Pharisees, who are meant to be his religious teachers, are meant to be the ones who show him the ways of God, are meant to be the ones who primarily care for him, and Jesus standing before him. So that's the scene of our passage. A hurting man with his religious teachers, the Pharisees standing before him and Jesus standing before him. And we see the Pharisees are actually going to speak first and they're not going to address the man, they're going to address Jesus. Look at verse nine again. He went on from there, entered the synagogue, a man was there with a withered hand and they, the Pharisees, asked him, not the man with the withered hand, but Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath. So here's another test they have, and Matthew makes very explicit their motivations. They ask this question, why? So that they might accuse him. So notice first, they don't give one thought to the hurting man in front of them, who's in their synagogue, who's the ones that they are supposed to be caring for. They do not give one thought to him. Rather, their motivation is accusing Jesus. Is there anything more cold? Is there any lack of mercy being more clearly displayed? They couldn't care less about this guy. Their motivation is we want to discount Jesus. We want to publicly shame Jesus. We want to accuse Jesus so that all might see. That's their very, very clear goal. So in order to, to what see what's going on here. Their question is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And to understand what's happening behind that question, I'm going to give a little bit of background. Carl did an excellent job, I think, giving kind of the background of what's happening here last week, so I'll I'll, I'll repeat some of that. So what they're asking, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? If you heal this guy, Jesus, are you going to be breaking God's law? That's the question. Now, behind that question is a whole lot of background we need to go through. So in the Old Testament... God gives his law, specifically in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Genesis as well. Those five books are often called the Torah, right? The law. When you hear, when you see summary in the New Testament of the law and the prophets, the law is those first five books. And so regarding the Sabbath laws, we see this in Exodus 20. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Okay, so there's the law. Do not do work on the Sabbath. Now, here's the question, the very important question that's getting at this whole debate that we're seeing. What constitutes work? How do I know when I'm doing work? Is it when I clock in to my job? Is it if I move furniture in my house? Is is it if I sweat a little bit? Is that work? And so the Pharisees, what they're kind of getting after, what the rabbis would be teaching is, uh, you know, how do we know if we're actually breaking God's law? We don't want to break the Sabbath. But we need to know God's not specific enough for us. And so during what's often called the intertestamental period, so in between Malachi and Matthew, there's, there's 400 years there. And during that 400 years, it's just one page for us, but in that 400 years, rabbis or Pharisees, teachers of the law, would take the finished Old Testament and they would preach, similar to this, Exodus 20. And they would say, don't do any work. Here's what constitutes work. Don't walk more than half a mile. Half a mile is here. You're on this side of it. You're good. No work. You take one step over half a mile. It's a little over half a mile, technically. Work, right? You've broken the Sabbath. So notice what they're doing. You have the law. You have the law from God. And then you have the teachers of the law, the rabbis, the Pharisees, adding extra laws to really make sure you don't break that law. And in fact, there were several rabbis who would teach, you know what? Half a mile is breaking the law. Why don't we just make sure we don't even get near that? So let's just say on the Sabbath, don't walk more than a quarter of a mile, because you don't want to get. I mean, that's that's playing with fire, right? You get close to that cliff, so a quarter of a mile. And then there was other rabbis who would say, you know what? We we really need to make sure we don't do anything that even remotely resembles breaking the Sabbath, doing work on the Sabbath. So you weren't allowed to thresh. You weren't allowed to go and harvest the wheat fields, and so there was a law, a teaching from uh, the rabbis. Let's just stay away from climbing trees, because if you fell down and you broke some sticks on the way down and you fell and you had some, that could be looking like you're, I mean, this is real, that could look like you're harvesting. So no climbing trees on the Sabbath. So you see what's happening here. You have law from God, and then you have laws to make sure you don't break the law. And then you have laws to make sure you don't break the laws. That would be breaking the laws. And then you have laws to make sure you don't even look like. You see, see the layers here. Let me give a hypothetical, a weird hypothetical that would never happen in our context. Imagine the Bible said, don't get drunk. And that's all that it says about the, the negatives of alcohol. In fact, it says God made wine to make the heart glad. But we say, you know, we don't want to get close to the cliff of getting drunk. So let's just say all alcohol is bad. If we see anybody, you know, drink, smoke, or chew, or hang out with those who do, let's just add, we're just being safe, right? We don't want to, right? That would never happen in our context, but it's it's similar. See what I'm saying? Add extra laws that God does not talk about. In fact, they contradict a lot of what God's law points to in order for us to stay safe, in order for us to stay righteous. And so what what this was called, this practice uh, was called putting a fence around the law. And so not only don't break God's law, but don't cross the fence. That could be any of those three layers given there. So here's the key. Why is this so important? When you see Jesus debating with the rabbis, with the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, and they say the word law, they mean God's law plus all of our extra layers of fences because they consider those just as authoritative as God's law. You see that? Does that make sense? Don't, is it lawful? To heal on the Sabbath, they ask Jesus. Now, one of their fences is, the the Old Testament doesn't say anything about healing on the Sabbath, but there was a fence, an added law that says, you can only heal on the Sabbath if it's a life-threatening situation, which a withered hand is not. So they know their answer. The Pharisees know their answer. No, it's not. Wait till tomorrow to heal this guy, Jesus. Jesus but they know they're added fences. You see that? So that's what's happening in this story today. They know this is against one of our added fences. Let's see if we can get Jesus to cross our boundary. Nothing to do with God's law. It's really important for you to see Jesus is not showing up and saying, I'm God, I can do whatever I want. I can break the law if I want because I'm God. It's really important for you also to see Jesus is showing up and saying, law bad, I'm the grace guy. So I'm here to take you away from that dead law. Let me just say it this way: If Jesus breaks one of God's laws, we have no salvation. He has not lived a perfect life on our behalf; therefore, he is not a perfect sacrifice for us. Jesus never breaks a single one of God's laws. That's not what's happening in these debates. Legalistic Pharisees saying, "Don't you want to follow the Old Testament?" And Jesus saying, "No, I'm the grace guy." That is not what's happening. Rather, this is more of a debate over the interpretation of the law. Okay? So that's what's happening here. So the Pharisees know this. They've got their fences around the law. They're trying to get Jesus to cross those fences so that they can publicly accuse him. Hey, everybody in the synagogue, you see what he's doing, right? He's breaking the Sabbath law when really he's just violated one of their arbitrary fences. And let's see how Jesus responds to this test. Look at verse 11. He, Jesus, said to them, which one of you... Who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? So here's his answer it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. So, just like every single one of these little battles between Jesus and the Pharisees, Jesus is very aware of their wicked, self-righteous, hypocritical hearts. He's very aware of these kind of extra layers to the law that they've added, these extra fences that are doing nothing but breaking the backs of their people and actually preventing them from seeing the heart of God in his good and perfect law. And in this situation, these arbitrary fences are preventing this man from getting healing. He is staying in his suffering because of their added arbitrary laws. And so Jesus, in his answer, simultaneously exposes their hypocrisy and actually gives the answer to the question. So first he exposes their hypocrisy. So sheep in this day aren't just your pet, although you're allowed to have affections for them. It was also a source of your livelihood. And so Jesus is saying, if you, Pharisees, asking me this trap of a question, if you had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, would you not stretch out your hand to get it out? Would you not heal that situation, either out of care for yourself, care for your own livelihood, or even care for your animal, yet you will not lift a finger to help your brother hurting, made in the image of God, that you're supposed to be over caring for? What disgusting hypocrisy. You'll care for yourself. You'll care for even your animals, but you will not care. You will not lift a finger to care for your brother who is hurting. And then, so he exposes their hypocrisy, and then he gives his true answer. Here's what's lawful on the Sabbath. Here's what God would have you do on the Sabbath. Remember, we've seen this over and over and over again. Jesus is here to reveal to us the heart of the living God. That's what he did in the Sermon on the Mount. You heard it say, don't murder. Here's what God truly wants. Don't hate your brother. And here is what God's heart would say through his law. It is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he turns and does good to the hurting man. Verse 13, then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored healthy like the other But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So the debate's over. The Pharisees are not re-engaging. And Jesus again turns and displays this merciful heart of God that we heard about last week. And he heals the hurting man. Notice he doesn't even touch the man. He just says, stretch out your hand. So how, how can he even be accused of doing work on the Sabbath? All he did was talk. And yet, what is the Pharisees' response after the man's hand is healed? The Pharisees don't answer him. Their response is to leave and conspire. How can we destroy him? They're no longer interested in discrediting him. Now they are interested in killing him, which if you've been following the heart, the progressively hardening heart of the Pharisees, we see this is kind of the apex We've seen them, him, them accuse him of blaspheming. They've called him a drunkard. They've even said he is a demon. That's how he's doing these miracles. He has a demon. And now they're not really worried about discrediting him anymore. They just want to eliminate him. They just want to kill him. And then that's where our passage ends. Now, notice, Matthew. the healing miracle is kind of in the background. That's not Matthew's focus. We don't even know the guy's name. It happens really, really quick. The focus here that Matthew wants our eyes fixed on is the interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. So I want to pull out three things I think we see from this interaction between Jesus and the Pharisees. I want to to look at them as they uh, contrast one another. And then I simply just want us to reflect with our own hearts. Where do our hearts fall? You've got the heart of Jesus and the heart of the Pharisees. That's one. You've got the eyes of Jesus and the eyes of the Pharisees. That's two. And you've got the actions of Jesus and the actions of the Pharisees. The burden that they're laying on the people. So let's look at those three things. And then as we look at these two parallels, we'll just simply ask that reflective question. Who are we more like? What are our hearts more like, Pharisees or Jesus? What are our eyes more more like So let's look at the first, the two hearts, Jesus' heart and the Pharisees' hearts, both very clearly on display in this story. So the first, uh, the Pharisees, we see the same heart that we've seen all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. The Pharisees are primarily concerned, if not singularly concerned, with justifying themselves. We see hearts that are primarily self-righteous. They don't need a doctor because they're not sick. They don't need a savior because they're already righteous. And we see the same thing in this story. Matthew makes their motivations very clear. They're here, they're interacting so that they might accuse Jesus. In their minds, this guy thinks he knows the law. This homeless carpenter's son thinks he can show up and teach the people the law better than we can. He can't do it in a synagogue. He doesn't even have a synagogue. He's got to do it on a mountain and just draw a crowd outside. Who does this guy think he is? This homeless man thinks he knows the law. We'll have a debate about the law. This guy thinks he's a savior. He thinks he can forgive sins. Again, who does this man think he is? We are the teachers of the law. We're the ones that show people the ways of God. We don't need a savior. We've got our perfect interpretation of the law. So why don't we, the Pharisees say, show everybody what a Lawbreaker, this guy is, and just go ahead and get him out of our way. That's their motivation extreme self righteousness, extreme desire to justify themselves. And so their hearts display this self righteousness. And just notice pay attention to these things. Look how much it's just warped them. Think about the fact. They are expecting Jesus to show mercy to someone that's hurting, and that's what they're going to use to discredit him. Think about that. They see someone hurting, and they think, yes, the caring, compassionate, merciful guy will now break the law and care for this guy. And that's not wicked in their minds. That's the way that they're going to display God's heart through the law. Look how much their self-righteousness has just kind of warped them. And then when their little debate doesn't work, what's their solution? Why don't we go out and we're done debating. Why don't we just kill him? Why don't we just kill God? That's how much their self-righteous hearts have warped them. One commentator I was reading, I thought this was great. He says, you know, debating was normal back in that day. And even if you would lose, you could be frustrated. You could be angry, but no one ever thought about murdering their debate partner. Yeah, that's exactly what the Pharisees have done, and that's where their self-righteous hearts have led them. I mean, I think when you think about the Exodus and the 10 plagues on Egypt, one of the painful things is just watching Pharaoh's foolishness. I mean, God is so clearly displaying he's infinitely more powerful than Pharaoh and all the false gods of Egypt, yet Pharaoh keeps doubling down, and even though you know he's the bad guy, you're kind of like, come on, just let him go. You're torturing yourself with this This is far worse. These men have God standing in front of them. And they're not just holding slaves so that they might benefit. They try to kill him. That is unbelievably warped and it all springs from this poison of self-righteousness that has just been growing and growing and growing in their hearts all throughout Matthew. That is a terrifying thing. That is a terrifying, crafty ability that sin has, and it is a very dangerous warning for us. Because I, I, I can't imagine a group of people being more blind. They think they're leading people in the ways of God while they condemn God standing in front of them talking to them. I can't imagine a greater amount of blindness. So that's the Pharisees. That's one heart. What about the heart of Jesus, His heart, on the other hand, what is being displayed? A heart that is so filled with mercy. We saw last week, go read, Jesus tells them, go read the heart of your father. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And here he walks into the synagogue and he sees the man there. He sees the man hurting and he doesn't think, like the Pharisees, here's an opportunity to play a legalistic game to boost my own fame. Rather, he sees someone hurting, and he meets them with mercy. He sees someone burdened, and he meets them with rest, like we've seen over and over and over and over again. When he encounters the lepers, when he encounters the sinners, when he encounters the unclean, the disgusting, that people, don't, people shriek away from, that they would just rather go away, Jesus draws near in compassion and mercy. Now, here's the tough part. Be honest with yourself. Which of those two does your heart look more like? Does your heart long to justify yourself? Does your heart long to be right? Does your heart often tell you, I'm better than? Are you quick to compare, whether it's to the people on your very row or just the weirdos out there in the world who are far more worse and hold far crazier views than you do? Do you use that as a way to bolster yourself up or eliminate the idea that you might also be a sinner in need of a savior, be a sinner in need of repentance? Do you make yourself feel better maybe by accusing others? Again, comparing, I'm not as bad as them or at least I'm more holy than them. Or I mean, let's be honest, I read my Bible I pray, I doubt those people do, probably don't do it as much as me. Is your heart quick to go there, especially when you're pressed? Especially when someone might point out a sin that you might need to think more through. Now, I'll give you the answer. I mean, you guys know I'm not. Every heart in this room has the seeds of self-righteousness planted deep because we're sinners, And we might not be as warped as the Pharisees. I don't think anybody in here is as warped as the Pharisees. But look at me. The same poison in their hearts is in your heart. And you need to be aware of it. And you need to fight against it. Do not coast like the Pharisees do thinking, I'm good. I'm I'm convinced I'm not the problem. But I'm, I'm happy to figure out what is the problem out there. We need to be aware of the same self-righteous poison that is in our hearts. And look at the consequences. You could be standing before someone that's hurting and just be so cold. You could see Jesus' mercy and your heart is filled with hate at how merciful he is being because doesn't he know it'd be better if they were just judged, you know. See the consequences and you need to fight against it. So actually I have three anecdotes, if you will, Three uh, medicines for our self-righteous hearts. By the way, when I say you, I always include me. Don't do the, he thinks he's better than me thing. I'm talking about humanity, right? So three things that I think actually will help us fight against, purge this poison of self-righteousness that's in our heart. All three are only found in Jesus. Number one, you need to recognize reality, Recognize that this poison is in you. Number two, walk in humility. And number three, receive Jesus's loving mercy. So number one, recognize reality. C.S. Lewis says the first step towards humility is recognizing your pride. And he says that is a far more difficult step than many of us realize to say, I am prideful. Self-righteousness is in here, and therefore, it must be fought against. Again, the worst thing you could do is just say, I'm good, it's everybody else that is the problem. Instantly, you've lost the battle. Recognize the reality. Yes, Christian, as Luther would say, you're simultaneously justified and a sinner, Notice how Paul will describe those who've been brought to Christ, those who've been saved and united to Christ, he'll say, put off the old self and put on the new self. There's this wonderful reality that when you come to Christ, the Lord says, you are gloriously perfect in my sight because when I look at you, I don't see all your failures. I see my son's success. And so the rest of the Christian life, if you want to say it this way, is becoming what you already are. That's why Paul doesn't say, you've been made new in Christ. So there you go. I don't need to finish this letter. No, he says, you've been made new, so put off the old self. It's no longer you who live, it's Christ who lives in you. Put on the new self and walk in the ways of the spirit. Don't walk in the ways of death. Christ has made you new. So recognize that reality. Yes, if you have trusted in Jesus, he's brought you to himself. You are gloriously perfect in the eyes of the father. Yet this side of eternity, there is a constant battle with your sin, of uprooting the weeds of sin so that the fruit of the Spirit might flourish. So that's the first part. Actively putting off the old self, putting on the new self, recognizing reality. This exists in our hearts. I am poor in spirit. We come back to it basically every sermon. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I need a savior because I don't have any salvation just in me. Recognize reality. Number two, walk in humility. You are going to have to preach to yourself often. When you see something you deem foolish that may actually be foolish and you're tempted just to scoff, you're going to have to preach to yourself, but for a gracious God intervening in my life, I am no different than the fool. I've come to truth not because I've logicked my way there. I'm not where I am because I pulled myself up by my holy bootstraps. He opened my blind eyes. That's how I see. You see the radical difference between those two. You're gonna have to preach that gospel of humility to yourself over and over and over again because humility will just suffocate self-righteousness. It won't be able to live if you keep telling yourself over and over and over again, but for a gracious savior, I'm no different. Scoffing won't be allowed to live in your heart Gavin Ortland, who's a a pastor and an author, and I think a professor. Anyway, I read his book and it was good. I wrote a book called Humility, and in one section he talks about if you want to stay humble, if you want to stay in this posture of humility, continually stay at the foot of the cross. He says this The gospel cures us of this, talking about self righteousness and pride. The gospel cures us of this because it teaches us to measure our pride not by others. But by the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross shows us the depths of God's love, but it also shows us the depths of our sinful need. It reveals that what God was willing to it reveals what God was willing to do, but it also reveals what he had to do. Our pride is such that it put the Son of God on the cross. Let us not rush past this too quickly. Let's dwell on this sobering truth for a moment. Our sin put Jesus on the cross. Let me put it even more personally for myself, and I invite you to consider the same. My sin put Jesus on the cross. It's a disquieting thought, isn't it? We wanna squirm around it somehow, but we must face it squarely and without evasion in order to understand our true condition. The pathway to humility starts here at the supreme offense of the cross where our pride is stripped of every last rag of self-defense. It is here at the foot of the cross That real humility begins. This is the eye of the needle which the camel of human pride must shrink and squeeze. This is where we must be unmade before we can be remade. Don't turn away in offense. If you can receive this, there is joy on the other side. So recognize reality. See your pride as putting him on the cross. Measure your pride, not by others around you, not by those in your row, not by those out there who are crazy. Measure your pride by the cross. Stay near to the cross and walk in humility. And number three, receive. Don't just stay there in morbid introspection and don't just say, woe is me, I'm so horrible. Receive the loving mercy of the Savior we see in this passage healing the hurting man. Once you see that he's up there, yes, paying the penalty for your sin, but also so that he might bring you to himself and pour out his infinite love into your heart and bring you to the father, not as a condemned sinner, but as a child of the living God. Once you see that infinite love and mercy, that heart of shame will be instantly transformed into a humble heart of joy. Jonathan Edwards says that when we get a sense of this, this, this loveliness of Christ, we'll walk in humility just because we won't focus on ourselves anymore. We'll be so overwhelmed with his wonders and his glory and how much he loves us that we just won't think of ourselves enough to be prideful. That was his solution. And I think it's true. So recognize reality, walk in humility, receive his loving mercy. And you'll find you actually begin to walk as your Savior walks here. As you receive His mercy, you will begin to actually show mercy to others because you'll know what He's done for you. That's the first thing. We see two hearts. You see the radical difference between those two hearts. Next thing we see is actually what the two hearts fight it, feed into uh, two sets of eyes. Two sets of eyes. Let's look at the Pharisees' eyes first. So, how do how do the self-righteous Pharisees view this man in front of them? We almost don't know because they barely acknowledge his existence. How do they view this hurting man? He is nothing but a pawn to be used in their religious debate. He's nothing but someone to be used to trap their enemy or justify themselves or, again, grow their own fame. He's there for their own benefit. Zero percent of their eyes settle on him and care. None of of their eyes see his pain or his suffering. They see, okay, good, here's someone we can use to defeat Jesus. What about Jesus' eyes? How did Jesus' eyes settle on this man? Rather than thinking, okay, good. This guy, I'll, I'll beat them because they've, they've really messed up the law and they're misleading the people. Jesus' eyes settle on this man and he just sees his pain and his hurt. And what does he say as he gazes at him? I see the value of God. Jesus over and over again has been revealing God's heart. We've seen this. Here we see Jesus revealing God's eyes. How much more valuable is this man than sheep? We've heard this before. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. Jesus likes this analogy. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? He feeds the birds, he clothes the flowers. How much more valuable are you to him? Now you might say, hey, I'm not an environmentalist. This is Texas, I'm very well aware, right? I'm more valuable than birds, but Jesus here isn't saying a fact. He's not just saying, get your information correctly. Humans, animals, right? He's not doing that. He's showing you the value spilling out of his father's heart or rather in his father's eyes. So think about this for a moment. I was, uh, I live here. I don't know why that's relevant. You guys know that. So I was sitting on my back porch. I was like, how do I get to where I'm giving an analogy about my house? I live here and I was sitting on my back porch and we get these little bunnies that hop through. I'm sure y'all do too. There's also hogs in my neighborhood. People are sending me articles all the time. They're like, is this your house? I'm like, yes. I've never seen one of those. But anyway, there's also bunnies. There's nice things. And I was sitting on the back porch, and these bunnies somehow weren't afraid. And so they were coming near to me, and I was being very contemplative and just thinking. And uh, I was originally just like, whoa, these aren't running away. They usually freak out every time I you know, breathe or something. And then I just started to think, these bunnies are chowing down. And because I was studying this passage, I started to think, the God, who is holding the Milky Way up right now, is feeding these two little creatures in front of me. That I deem—I mean, they're going to hop around and hopefully not get hit by a car and be kind of nice to look at. But what's—you know—what are they worth? And yet, the God of the universe is taking time to feed them with either grass or whatever is in my grass. I don't actually know what they're eating. Uh, and then I just started to think of Matthew 6 and started to hear the birds around me. And, you know, the God who carves the Grand Canyon out of the ground is putting the song in their throats and is going to feed them as well. And just started to think about our infinitely ginormous God, caring, his eyes being set on these little creatures right in front of me. And then Jesus' words just flooded into my heart. God takes so much intentional care to feed these little useless animals. I mean, I guess... They have some meat on them, again. But how much more does he care for you? If his eyes are fixed on these two little bunnies, how much more are his eyes fixed on you? He knows every hair on your head. He knows all your passions and dreams. He knows every pain you've ever walked through when you felt like you were so alone and that no one can understand you or no one can understand the depths of pain. Even if people wanted to understand, you couldn't explain it to where they understand. And and God does. He knows you to your depths even greater than you know yourself. And when he lays his eyes on you, as Jesus lays his eyes on this hurting man, he sees nothing but care and compassion flow from him. The same eyes fixed on this man in the story right now are fixed on you. And so before I talk about, you know, whose eyes do we have, are the Pharisees' eyes or Jesus' eyes, we'll get there in a second. I, I just, I was thinking through it and just think, I so often, and, and maybe you do too, treat God, treat Jesus like he has the Pharisees' eyes. I treat him like I, he's, you know, I'm, he's indifferent towards me unless I'm performing really well and then I can get his attention. Then he'll be proud of me, but then I need to keep that up. I so often Thank God views me as a, as a pawn in his game that he doesn't really care for. And how different, how radically other than the scriptures just screaming at you. You're the apple of his eye. He takes you and cares for you under the shadow of his wings. Everything you think, he thinks towards you. He thinks the opposite. Infinitely more so, he sees you with nothing but perfect care. And so I want to take a moment to just ask, do we see his merciful heart towards us? Do you see his merciful heart towards you? Do you see, do you feel his eyes fixed on you with nothing but care? Not shame or condemnation or why aren't you good enough or I've got such better kids all over the world. Aren't you a missionary yet, right? Then I would really care about it. Not that, not the eyes of the Pharisees, but the eyes we see here with Jesus with nothing but care and compassion. My favorite Scottish preacher talks about this. says, live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye, settle on you in love and rest in his almighty arms. How opposite do we usually view God? And Jesus here? saying, I'm here to show you the heart of the Father and the eyes of the Father shows nothing but care. So do you see his eyes for you? You need to see that. You'll pray differently if you see that. You'll live differently if you see that. You, you'll relate to other people differently if you see that. You won't need so much from other people. You won't need satisfaction from other people when you see his perfectly satisfying gaze settled on you. You see, This, this would heal everything in your life if we actually grasp this and actually began to believe it. We need to see this. Jesus wants you to see it. And then secondly... Do we have those eyes towards others? Do we mirror here Jesus or do we mirror the Pharisees? Do we see hurting people as commodities? How can this relationship be used for my own benefit? Do we see our relationships primarily as serving me? If I like your personality, this can continue. If this doesn't require too much sacrifice on my end, this will happily continue so long as I'm getting primarily benefited? Do we have the eyes of the Pharisees as we look towards one another, or do we have eyes that just see value of others made in the image of God? That's just humanity. The people that infuriate you out there who are made in his image. How much more your brothers and sisters in this room that have been united to Christ, that Christ is beautifying, glorifying, C.S. Lewis says, we shouldn't see each other how we are now with all of our messiness and our dirtiness. Rather, see one another as God is making them. See one another as, as we will be in eternity. And he says this, love this quote, the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship You see Daniel fall down before the angels and they show up and the angels are like, get up. You're going to get us both in trouble. But it's just the most glorious thing he's ever seen. Lewis is saying, you see that person sitting next to you right now in your row, glorified in eternity before the living God, you would fall down. Don't see people with all of their stains. See one another as Christ does with care, love, and value. D.J. Bonhoeffer has another quote that I like. He talks about community. He wrote this incredible book called Life Together. He says, The person who loves their dream of community will destroy community. Here's what it should look like. I've got all my preferences and my ideals in my head. That's what you go into with. You're going to actually destroy community. But the person who loves those around them will create community. You show up with your ideals You'll tear everybody down until they meet your preferences, but you just see the person across from you and you just love them. You care for them. You have eyes for them like Jesus has. All of a sudden you'll see how incredible community has been created by the life of Christ. Where do we fall there? We must have his eyes if our life together is gonna to display something supernatural. If the world looking in is gonna say, these must be Jesus' disciples, I can tell by their love for one another. We need these eyes for one another. Jesus' eyes, heart, eyes. Lastly, actions, burdens laid. Two burdens, it was a stretch, I get it. Two actions, right? Two, Two burdens being laid and then we'll be done. What is the Pharisees' burden they're putting on the people? Here's the law, here's all these extra laws. And if you can keep them like us, you too can be awesome. You too can be righteous. You too can need no doctor. You too can earn righteousness by your good behavior. Earning your way to salvation, that is the burden of the Pharisees. It's a crushing burden, which is why everybody is withering under their leadership. Then Jesus' burden, it's the total opposite. Come to me, weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. you want to go to the Father, it's through me. Come to me and I will do you good on the Sabbath. His burden is easy, light, freeing, life-giving. So let me ask, which burden are you carrying? And before we move on too quickly, I don't know if you realize this, we, Christian or not, love carrying the burden of the Pharisees. Though it may crush us, We love trying to earn our salvation. I'm a good person. I work hard. I pull myself up by my bootstraps. I'm certainly better than others. We love earning our salvation. Let me give you two Tom Hanks movies to illustrate my point. Number one, Castaway. I really loved it as a kid. I don't know why. It's not happy. But there's this scene in Castaway where he's trying to make a fire. And he's trying and he's trying. It's actually kind of painful to watch. He, he cuts his hands at one point and makes a new best friend named Wilson, but he's trying to make this fire. Now, I want you to just imagine you're watching the scene and it's painful and you're seeing him frustrated and furious. You know, he needs fire. And then imagine the camera just zooms out and there's an electric fire there that somehow works on this island. Stick with my analogy. There's an electric fire there that's right beside him. And he's working so hard and his hands are bleeding and he's talking to volleyballs when what he needs is right there, Available for him. You would probably think, hey, you're being very dumb. Or, hey, turn around. What are you doing? Why are you going through all this pain, this crushing weight of trying to make this fire? We do that exact same thing. Let me tell you why. Because like Tom Hanks, I forget the character's name, we want to say, look what I have created. I have made fire. We want to boast. I have done this. By my own power, we love that crushing weight that we can never bear. And Jesus shows up and says, no, no. First of all, all your good works are filthy rags. Sorry to break it to you. No one does good. No, not one. In fact, it's by grace you've been saved. Not of your own doing, not by works. It's a free, free gift so that no one can boast that's the whole point of why I'm here. We love trying to earn our salvation. And then if that was, wasn't silly enough, we try to earn our sanctification all the time. We think, thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Now I'll take it from here. I'll be good so that the Father keeps liking me. Right? I'm going to be so holy and so obedient. I'm going to make you proud. And that reminds me of another Tom Hanks movie, Saving Private Ryan. There's this Scene at the end, and this is a huge spoiler alert, but I think you've had like 27 years. So, scene at the end of it where uh, they save Private Ryan and Tom Hanks, again, gets shot in the process and he's dying and this is kind of, they, they survive, right? The mission is a success, but it's sad. Tom Hanks is dying and he pulls Ryan close and he says, earn this. And then it see, you see Matt Damon and the camera changes and he's old and he falls before uh, Tom Hanks' gravesite and he says... Every day, I've thought of what you said to me. I've tried to live my life as best I could. I hope it was enough. And everyone in the movies are crying, you know, tears are all so beautiful. And I'm like, what a jerk dying Tom Hanks is. Here, We've saved you. Here's all this salvation. Go live your life. Freedom. Nope. Live every single day trying to earn this and be in misery because you never know if you've lived up to it. Enjoy that curse for the rest of your life. That is what we do. When we come to Jesus and we say, thank you for my justification, I'll take my sanctification. And Jesus again says, no, I'm the founder and the perfecter of your faith. I that started a good work in you will be faithful to finish it. Are you carrying either of those burdens? Are you carrying the Pharisee Tom Hanks Burden? It will crush you, and it's silly. It's as silly as thinking a bloody volleyball is your best friend. When the free gift is standing in front of you saying, come to me, live life in me. Are you trying to perform to earn God's favor that has already infinitely been given to you? Paul says, height, depth, nothing is going to separate you from the love of Christ in Christ Jesus. You have it, the Spirit is shed abroad the love of God in your hearts? Are you still trying to earn it when you have it infinitely? You will. It's another thing that we have to fight. One more analogy, I'll be done. So I, this, I guess not an analogy, I'll just tell you. It's a personal story. Uh, I wake up every morning with the Saving Private Ryan burden. I think just because I'm a sinner. I, I wake up every morning and even if I wake up real early, I, the first, some of the first thoughts in my head are, I should have already been up. I should have already been praying. I should have already been reading. In fact, I should probably have this book memorized. I'm a pastor after all. I feel that weight every single day. And so I could go in to my little office and turn on the lamp and think, I need to, to yell really loud at God to get him to pay attention because he's probably frustrated. I mean, John Wesley probably woke up earlier, and so did George Whitfield, right? And so he's probably like, "Okay, I guess you're fine. You'll do right? Those are the thoughts that will swirl around my head. And so, taking advantage of technology, I have a reminder on my phone that pops up. It's the first thing I see every day that just says, "Go to receive from your loving Father," and it's the way of preaching the gospel to myself. Take this crushing burden off, because there's nothing but care and mercy and infinite love waiting for you as you crack open the pages of Scripture. When you utter the words, Heavenly Father, the hearer of those words sees you as he saw Jesus coming out of the Jordan River. Yes, my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. Every morning I have to take this Pharisee burden off and I have to put on. Jesus is light, easy burden, I imagine you will too. One of the glories of glory of eternity is one day he'll wipe away every tear and he'll say, this wrestle is done. The burdens are gone forever. The battle with self-righteousness is done. You have nothing, no more faith even necessary. All you have is sight All you have is life. Until we get there, we look forward in faith, believing his promises, believing this same wonderful savior who's healing this man, this master of the scriptures who knows the father and is displaying his heart, whose heart is filled with mercy and whose eyes are filled with care. In the same way he set his eyes on the hurting man, he has set his eyes on you. And he didn't just see your withered hand, he saw your withered heart. Or rather, your wicked heart. And in order that you might be healed and restored, he was destroyed. He withered on the cross under the weight of our wickedness, also that he could do you good. Also that he might heal you, he might restore you, that you might actually not just know about him, but come to know him. And know his father as your father. And his merciful heart wouldn't be just a fun fact. It would be something that you have experienced. And his caring eyes wouldn't just be a hoped-for dream. It would be a reality that you walk in. And his light, life-giving burden might be always on your back. See your wonderful Savior with his eyes fixed on you and come to him. Let's pray. Father, like we pray every week, we need you to move. We know you hear us. We know your eyes are fixed on us. Your promises are here for us. And so we want, we just want the whispering lies of doubt to be silenced. We want the serpent in the garden to get away from. Our ears that we might not have uh, your character doubted. We might not hear, God can't really be this good. He's got to have some ulterior motives. But we might hear the louder voice of your spirit saying, he is this good and infinitely more. And he's come to do you good. All he does is good. And he sent his son to do you good on the Sabbath. Let us believe it, Father. Let us have the faith to grab hold of it and receive it with all of our mights, that you might be glorified because you have children who believe you, who trust you, who enjoy you, and that we might actually begin to walk in this freedom that your scripture has promised. No matter the pain, no matter the darkness, we might say, I've got a good shepherd with me in the valley, and he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies, and my cup overflows with joy because I have him, and he's leading me to the house of the Lord where I will dwell forever. We pray, That that would be not just a memorized verse, but would be the core reality of our hearts. And we pray in your son's name. Amen.